0: You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so excited as we reach really the halfway point today in the sermon on. Pretty far apart, and uh, it was not necessarily a smooth transition for me if you're a parent, you know this that moving your kids, especially moving your kids in high school, is a difficult time and uh, I was sixteen years old, I finally felt like I had a friend group, and I was three days out from finishing my sophomore year and heading into summer, and I went from three days finishing out my sophomore year to going. To Australia, where it's year-round school, to jumping right back into school, and I had just like a really tough transition. Uh, not only that, but Australia had been in a drought for about seven years, and it was like all of the rains were held in the heavens for that time. And the week that we moved was one of the largest rainstorms they had in 50 years. Uh, I'll save that story for another sermon, but. Needless to say, I, I go into school and I had trouble making friends. And uh, the school that I went to uh, was kind of notorious for uh, immorality. I guess would be the right way to say that. And it was just kind of like this party scene and lots of bad influences. And uh, not only that, there wasn't a cafeteria at the school, and so everyone had kind of these like covered picnic areas. Or there, you know, so when, when it rained for lunchtime, everyone had their own little group, except for who? except for me. And I felt like Eeyore, you know, from Winnie the Pooh, just like wandering around in the rain every single day. It was, it was kind of like this uh, wilderness time for me in my life. But every single day, what I would do is I would go home from school, and I still have these journals. And I would write pages and pages in these prayer journals. And I prayed the same thing every single day. God, give me a friend. God, give me a friend and i didn 't necessarily tell anyone didn 't tell my parents didn't tell my little sister, I certainly didn 't tell the kids at school, but I was praying for this, right It was one of those prayers that only I knew and God knew and then a couple weeks into school, I was sitting in my physical education class, not quite gym class, it was like classroom learning about sports and medicine and all that sort of stuff. and uh, I made some sarcastic uh, remarks because if you know me, sarcasm is one of my love languages <laughs> And I was there and I, you know, made some remark to the kid next to me I was like, Oh, nice weather. You know, it was obviously like not nice weather outside and he chuckled. I was like, okay, that's like a little open door, a little uh, little response to my humor there. And then uh, I asked a question during class about running and high school I was really into running. And after the class was over, this guy turned to me and he said, Hey, I, I didn't know you ran. I was like, yeah, I love running. And he was like, I run too. And he was like, oh, that's crazy. And it was kind of this, this, you know, wasn't trying to make friends with this random kid who was sitting next to me, but he said, hey, do you want to, this was like life-changing, do you want to sit with me and my friends at lunch today? And I was like, boy, do I, you know? <laughs> And uh, it, it wasn't the next, the lunch period wasn't next, so I had another class, and I was like, where do you sit? He's like, we're by this, this tree, and I was like, okay, I still don't know where anything is. And he literally met me at my next class period at the end of, I felt like I was on a first date, and he walked me there, <laughs> and I want to show you some photos. This is my buddy, Chris, he ended up, you know, becoming a lifelong friend of mine, uh, Chris, is one of the main reasons I'm in Boise. It wasn't my idea to go to Boise Bible College. It was Chris's idea. He thought it would be fun to spend a year in the States going to Bible College. And we kind of made a bet that I, you know, I was like, you're never going to do that. And then he did, and I became his roommate. And uh, we were in each other's weddings. And, uh, and God answered my prayer in a very specific way. Now, the reality is, maybe you have stories like that or you're praying for something, it was very specific, and maybe it was even a secret prayer where you didn't tell anyone else that that's what you were praying for, and the way that that prayer was answered was like, this has to be the hand of God. And that's amazing, and we can celebrate and praise God for those times, but the reality is, for every story like that, you probably have at least a dozen other stories of moments where you've been praying for something and it didn't go how you planned. The reality is, prayer is this central, practice for us as followers of Jesus, but it doesn't always come easy. Uh, There's lots of difficulties. Some of us find ourselves in moments where we go to pray with, with the intentions, I'm going to spend this time in prayer, and we get distracted. We go to pray, and we don't know what to say when we pray. Or maybe we pray the same thing, and God doesn't answer our prayer, or at least he doesn't answer our prayer in the way that we wanted him to. So there's lots of struggles, and I understand, I just want to acknowledge there's lots of struggles with prayer. Uh, and today we're talking about prayer, that's why I told you this story. But I want to recommend two resources for you uh, to, to go back to and reference. The first one is uh, we actually spent the first five weeks of January 2020 as a series on prayer just called Teach Us to Pray. So if you weren't with us, if you missed that teaching series, that's kind of a little bit more in-depth dive. Five weeks on prayer. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on hillcityboise.org slash teaching. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, if you look for it, you can find it. And I would highly encourage you because the reality is there's lots of different ways to pray. There, there, there's different uh, techniques in prayer. There's different things that can help us grow in the discipline of prayer. And we're really just going to be scratching the surface today. And then the second resource is not a resource from me. It's actually one of my favorite books on prayer by Pete Gregg. It's called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. And what I love about it is it's very accessible to wherever you're at. If you feel like you don't, you have no idea what's going on when you sit down to pray, or even if you've prayed for a long time, it will even challenge you and give you uh, some good practical guides to Prayer. So that's, you can mark those down if you want more uh, information. The reality is prayer is central to the Sermon on the Mount. This is like, we're going to arrive at the midway point, the exact halfway point in the Sermon on the Mount, and I I don't think it's an accident uh, that in some ways you could say this is maybe even the climax of the Sermon on the Mount, that in Jesus' most famous teaching at the center of it is the Lord's Prayer. It's this phenomenal prayer. It's one of Jesus' great contributions, not just in Christian teaching, we think we love all of Jesus' teaching, but even Jewish teaching, what Jesus teaches on prayer here in the Sermon on the Mount. This is phenomenal, groundbreaking stuff. And the reality is, prayer is not only central to the Sermon on the Mount, prayer is central to our faith in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, And too often, for many of us, it's kind of one of those like, peripheral things or optional things and the longer that I follow Jesus and the longer that I've been in ministry I am absolutely convinced that prayer is like one of the most important things in your walk with God you can be saved without having read the whole Bible yet do you know that you don't have to like complete the course write an essay I don't think you can be saved if you've never prayed Prayer is one of these enduring, at least in some like simple tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? Pray, like, prayer is the central. We know this in any human relationship. Can you truly say that you know someone if you've never spoken to them? No, you can be a follower of theirs on Facebook, right? But you, communication is central to relationship. It's the foundation. It's the bedrock of relationship. And it's the bedrock of our relationship with God. And so prayer, we've got to get this right. I hope that by the time I retire, hopefully at a ripe old age from being a pastor, we would be able to look back at everything God has done in our church and point the finger totally to God and say, to God be the glory because we, we, not because we did great things, but because we prayed and God did great things. This is like the, I want this to be the lifeblood, not just of my life, my children's lives, but of our life as a church. Faithful prayer is one of our core values. I love prayer, can you tell? Oswald Chambers says it really well. Prayer does not fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greater work. This is is so incredibly important. So with that in mind, let's open your Bible to Matthew chapter six. It's a bit of a lengthy passage. I'm gonna be, hopefully, cruising through today, Uh, but Jesus is going to teach us two ways not to pray, two ways to pray, and then he's going to give us the Lord's Prayer as a template and a model for our prayer. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, and when you pray, everyone say, when you pray." pray, not if you pray, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand And pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, everyone say, when you pray. pray. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So this is, Garrett did an awesome job last week introducing, there's three righteous practices that Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter six. The first one was giving. We don't give uh, in order to be seen, right? Well, here he's gonna address prayer. We don't pray in order to be seen. But we have to be careful with these practices not to take them too legalistically or too far. Is Jesus forbidding public prayer? Is he forbidding prayer in church? I hope not. That would be horrible. I pray in church almost every week, from the stage, with a microphone. It goes on YouTube, right? So if like anyone's guilty of like public prayer, you know, so you can look at Jesus's life. He prayed out loud. We have prayers from Jesus recorded in scripture. In a few verses, we will have a public prayer from Jesus recorded in scripture. So we have to understand when he says, is there something inherently wrong about praying and someone seeing you pray? Is there something inherently wrong about praying and someone hears you pray? Obviously not. So we have to be really careful with our interpretation here uh, because it's easy to take these kind of extreme statements that Jesus says and take them too far or be too legalistic. So he's not forbidding public prayer. Jesus himself prayed publicly. The early church was devoted to public prayer, it was one of the four core practices of the early church. So either they totally miss Jesus' teaching here or, 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 or we misunderstand it if we're getting too legalistic. So here's the point, okay? Here's what Jesus is forbidding. Don't pray to get attention. There's a difference between someone seeing or hearing you pray and you praying in order to be seen and heard. Does that make sense? And the difference may not even be in how you do it. The difference might be in your heart in which you do it. Two people can pray in the exact same way, from a stage in a church service, that would be the synagogue example, or maybe in the street corners, right, that might be a little bit more extreme, going out on the street and yelling prayers so that everyone might hear you, but there's obviously nothing wrong with praying in church. The problem is the heart posture. I'm I'm maybe only praying in church, and you might ask yourself that question, is the only times that I pray when I'm around other people, And if the only times that you pray, maybe even pray out loud, is when you're around other people, you may want to do a heart check and ask yourself, am I praying in order to be seen? And this same principle will apply to giving and prayer and fasting next week, is if that's the case, then really you have all that you sought out to get. If you're going for attention from people, you get the the hand clap, you get the likes, you get the whatever. Then you have your reward in full is what Jesus says. That's the principle. But the reality is there's more to prayer than that. And and you can pray and in a in a group. In fact, it's a really rich practice to pray in small groups, to pray corporate prayers. But it's the heart in which we approach those things. Instead, what does Jesus tell us to do? To pray in secret. To pray in secret. And when you pray in secret, he says, go into your, your, your room and lock the door. This is where we get the idea of the prayer closet from. And your father who sees what you do, or, or maybe we might say who hears your prayers, will hear those prayers and they he will reward you. Now, what kind of rewards can we expect God to give for those who pray? Accurately, I think last week, Garrett interpreted that as uh, heavenly, like actual heavenly rewards, right? And that has a good basis in a passage we'll see later on in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says not to lay up for yourselves, store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in, in heaven. It seems like Jesus is talking about don't be like you know, a hoarder, don't accumulate things on earth, but anything that you sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom is actually not a true sacrifice. What it actually is, it's an investment, in eternal investment in the in the age to come, and I think that's an appropriate uh, response there. I don't think that the rewards that God gives for prayer are necessarily the same as that. I think Jesus is talking about maybe a different kind of reward, not like for every prayer you pray, you get a lazy boy recliner in your heavenly mansion, right? I don't think that's what he's talking about. When he's talking about stuff, I think that is an inappropriate interpretation here. Here, I think there are two main ways that Jesus uh, is talking about the Father rewards those who pray in secret. And the first way is maybe the one that we naturally think of, is he hears your prayers and he answers them. He answers them. I mean, in some ways, one of the barriers to prayer is hypocritical prayer. Did you realize that? If you're praying with with impure motives, James talks about this, to spend on your own passions, or if you're praying in order to be seen and to gain attention, that's actually a roadblock. Some people say, why hasn't God answered my prayers? I don't know if we always check our hearts before we pray. That's the first improper way to pray. And so this isn't to say that God will always give you exactly what you want or, or, or how you want it, but I think that's the first, the natural reward that God gives to those who pray with a pure heart is he answers our prayers. And then the second one is one that I think maybe we don't always think about, but we don't always get things from God. One of the greatest things we get when we pray is we get God himself. This is what I think the heart of prayer ultimately is, is we pray to grow closer to God. We don't necessarily pray just to get things from God. I, I like to use this illustration of a college kid who goes away, and uh, they're ghosting their parents. Do you know what ghosting means? Okay. Means you just you're not very responsive. You don't send text messages often or whatever. And uh, until they ran out of gas in their car, and then there's the hey, could you transfer over a few, you know? And it's the, the you know it's kind of that relationship where it's only transactional and it's only when I need something. God isn't wanting that kind of relationship with His children, and so often that's the only. It, it's it's appropriate for us to ask God for things. That's really kind of even at the heart of what prayer is, asking God for help, dependence on God. And yet, we don't want to only go to God to get things from God. We actually go to God to get God himself. Deeper relationship, time in God's presence. The people who have the greatest relationships with God, guess what? Those are the people who really pray, who really pray. It's not just the information and the education from Scripture. It's the relational component of conversation, sitting in God's presence, sitting at the feet of Jesus, time with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pete Gregg, in his book, How to Pray, says it like this, Jesus is always more interested in friendship than in dispensing blessings to faceless souls. It's a great way to put it. I don't want to just be another faceless soul that only goes to God with my Santa Claus wish list, Right? I want want God Himself. I want a living, active, thriving relationship with God. And and you're not going to get that if you're looking for the attention or the applause from people. You're only going to get that when you actually spend that time in the secret place, in the prayer closet. And uh, I just want to ask you this question where do you pray? Where do you pray? Technically, you can pray anywhere. You don't have to be in a church to pray. You don't have to be in a specific place to pray. But this practice of the prayer closet, the the room that Jesus references, especially in uh, in the first century, most houses didn't have lots of rooms. The room that he references is the only lockable room in the house, which was the closet. So when when we get this idea of a prayer closet, that's because Jesus gives it to us here. It's the only lockable room. And it's a very... uh, you wouldn't necessarily call it a holy place right it's where you stored your stuff <laughs> you know it's where you stored for us a vacuum or you know, it's where it's like where you stored all your junk and the, the importance of this closet is this idea of it's an uninterrupted place it it may not be necessarily this overly sacred or holy place but it's private it's, you can be alone. You can have that alone time. You can have that quiet time with God. I came across a series of social media posts uh, from Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. I just wanna show you. Uh, they had this, this kind of uh, uh, series of social media posts they called Holy Ground PDX. And it was just people in their church uh, just posted online, like, this is my prayer closet. You know, it, this is the place where I, some of people had actual closets. Some, it was the bus. For some, it was a park bench. For some, it was while they're doing their dishes. I have the same faucet as that person, actually. <laughs> and uh, it might be a place of beauty for you, especially if you, like, for us, we have lots of young kids. For me, like, it's my car <laughs> when I drive. It's like the only time where no one's bothering me. And, uh, and so, so I thought, you know, one thing I thought would be cool this week, and this is going to work for people even watching online, is this week, I want to encourage you. Uh, to post your prayer closet online. And uh, I want to give you a hashtag. You can use, I just stole it directly from Bridgetown, hashtag Holy Boise. And if you tag us online at Hill City Boise, uh, I want to like repost some of these just to give some ideas. It's a cool community. Now, if you're reading the text carefully, you might wonder, isn't that the exact opposite thing that Jesus just told us to do about? Okay, <laughs> first of all, I'm giving you permission, okay? That's the first thing. And the second thing is, once again, to reiterate my point, you can post a social media post online and tag Hill City Church and invite someone to Easter, and you can do that with a pure heart as a genuinely evangelistic outreach motive, or you can do that so that people think that you're good for going to church. Does that make sense? You can do the same action, and it can be self-centered and conceited, or it can be missional. And so I... Check your heart. Not everyone, if no one posts this, that's fine. This is just like a total flop, bad idea, Josh. We won't ever do a hashtag again. But and if, you, if you feel like, you know what, it would be weird. Like for me, it would be weird for my heart to post. You know. Also, if you just hashtag, people won't know what you're really posting unless they go to church here and they listen to the sermon. Uh, you have permission not to do this. Like not everyone has to do this. But if you feel like that'd be cool, I actually think this would, would be a really cool missional thing. If you were to post a random picture of a park bench and just hashtag Holy Ground Boise, you might get people who are like, what was that post all about? And you could tell them, and that's a conversation starter that introduces the discussion of faith. Does that make sense? So you don't wanna do righteous deeds with a selfie stick. I understand that, but okay, let's move on. That's the first way not to pray, not to gain attention, even though I just told you to post it on social media. (laughs) Matthew chapter six, verse seven. And when you pray, everyone say, when you pray. when you pray. Interesting language here. Okay, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is the second way. Jesus gives two ways not to pray. This is the second way. I want to ask you this question. In the first one, Jesus is clearly not forbidding public prayer. In this in this you know, uh, in in these passages, is Jesus forbidding long prayer sessions? No. Is Jesus forbidding praying persistently the same thing over and over again? No, Jesus himself prayed all night long. I don't know how long the last prayer session you had, but it's judge, and she literally, it says that that she beat him down with her, her persistence. Like the word used is literally like to punch someone over and over with how persistent she called for justice. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. Okay, So Jesus here, and this is a difficult uh, portion to translate because the word that Jesus uses, that ESV translates, heaps up empty phrases, is batalageo. And this word is so unique, it's only used one time in the entire Bible. So even interpreters of scripture are like, what do we do with geo'? What, what does this word actually mean? It's, it's a practice that the Gentiles would do. So in the first example, he talks to the very righteous people, the Jews. Don't be like hypocritical righteous people. In the second example, he gives people who, who are in pay, involved in pagan practices. And I think the best interpretation of the Greek word geo' is this word babbling. Do you know what an onomatopoeia is? Everyone say onomatopoeia. That's a good, I mean, in school, that's a fun word. It's when a word sounds like what it's describing, right? Like the word pop, you know what that means, because it's onomatopoeia. Bata leggeo, I think one of the best interpretations is it kind of sounds like it's a, it's a little bit of a tongue twister itself. And I think the best interpretation is that this word means almost like babbling or nonsensical prayers, or maybe even, we, we might say not necessarily repetition, but unnecessary repetition, as the ESV says like people are just heaping up like you know when you were in school and you had an essay and you had a word count, <laughs> and you're just like synonyms and you're like add like you're saying the same thing over and over but you're like trying to find like minor variations of saying the same thing. It's kind of like that. Two examples from Scripture in Acts chapter 19, verse 34, uh, Paul is in Ephesus, and there is a lot of pagan practice of worship of the goddess Artemis, and there's this riot, and for two hours, the Ephesians scream, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!" For two hours, that might be an example of batalhão, right? It's this kind of pagan worship where they're just, they're just. Screaming the same thing over and over, or, or maybe a good example would be in First Kings chapter 18, where Elijah is challenging the prophets of Baal, and you have all hundreds of prophets of Baal and the lone prophet Elijah. Phenomenal story about prayer and even persistence and power in prayer. And uh, they have this challenge. If you remember, there's this challenge where there's you know two altars and they're going to pray and ask their God to call down fire from heaven. And Elijah is courteous. He says, "You guys go first. and uh, the prophets of Baal go first, and they're like they're battlegetting. They're like screaming and saying the same things over and over. They actually end up cutting themselves. And Elijah gets a little bit testy, and he's like, "Maybe your God's in the bathroom." And it's like this kind of you know sarcastic thing. And uh, but I want to read you the point of this when they're when the pagans are praying in this kind of way. Look at what the point is in 1 Kings 18, verse 29. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And the point is, especially when you're praying to a false god, you're not going to be able to get the answer just by, you know, pagans might think they, in, their, in their practice, if I just find the right words, the magic words, the right, you know, so I'm going to or if I just fill the word count for the essay, if I just say it enough times and chant it enough times, then my God will answer my prayers. And what Jesus is actually prohibiting is not to pray like the pagans. So here's the point. Don't pray to manipulate God. Don't pray thinking that you need to fill some word count because if you say it enough times, then God has to do what you told him to do. We don't pray to assert our will on God. We, we pray, you know, seeking God's will. We pray even sometimes to influence God's will. But we don't pray thinking we can twist God's arm because, ah, I said the magic words, God. I, I finally found that phrase. And if we're honest, as Christians, we kind of use that phrase, in Jesus' name, amen, sometimes like this. I prayed in Jesus' name. That's the magic words, right? We have to be really careful not to batalageo, not to try to pray to manipulate God. There's no minimum word count. There's, you don't have to find the magic words. Here's Jesus' point. Get to the point. When you pray, get to the point. Instead of praying to manipulate God, we need to pray knowing that God is listening. First of all, knowing that God is real. You know, If you're praying to a piece of wood or stone or metal, if you're praying to an idol, you can be sure that idol is not listening to you. We pray to the living God, and that's an important thing to remember, but we pray knowing God is listening. And Jesus consistently, this is, his, this is his monumental contribution to prayer theology, is when we pray, we pray to a good father. And this is very different than how the Jews would have been used to praying, generally addressing God as Lord. And there's this, there, there is this aspect of, of God's transcendence, his beyondness of us. But Jesus teaches us to address him as Father, And a really good father, when their child comes up to them, doesn't like stiff arm them or doesn't like just, I'm just checking the, you know, a really good father says, okay, this is what a really good father does. What do you want to talk to me about? And it gets down to the level, we call it bending an ear to listen and to engage. Our father in heaven does that when we pray, so we don't need to be like crazy little children screaming and dancing and doing everything to get his attention. We can pray with certainty that God is listening. Not always certainty that he's going to do exactly what we ask him to do, but we can pray with certainty that he hears us and he's listening. I love 1 John 5:14. This is how the apostle John puts it. And this is the confidence you can have, do you realize you're going to have confidence when you talk to God? This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, he what? He hears us. He hears us. He's listening. And, and this brings us to our last point before we jump into the Lord's Prayer, is we have to remember who we are talking to. Remember who you are talking to. Jesus, the beginning of the Lord's prayer, we'll get to in a second, teaches us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. And this is, this is very unique. to uh, in, in the Old Testament, pay attention to this. You'll see uh, God being uh, addressed as Father usually indirectly. Like People might use it as an analogy for who God is, but there's ve- it's very rare that people are told, you can call God Father. In that kind of personal, intimate kind of language, except for by who tells us to do that? Jesus. And, he, and we expect him when he's like, he talks to God as his father. Of course, he's the son of God, right? But now he tells us, guess what? You are part of the family. You're part of the family. And so we remember, and it's this tension that we need to remember. God is both holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We have to remember that. We, we don't wanna be overly casual necessarily, but he's also heavenly father. He's Abba. He's your dad. He loves you. He cares about you. And that's why a really good practice before you begin a time of prayer is instead of jumping in, here's the wish list, here's my needs, pause, breathe, remember who you're talking to, maybe even use scripture as a primer, maybe even repeat the phrase, our Father in heaven, a few times, and slow down and remember who you're talking to. With that, that's the first two ways not to pray. With that, let's jump into The Lord's Prayer, I want to do something uh, a little different. Let's all stand, and I want us to read the Lord's Prayer out together. Jesus says, pray then like this. Let's recite, We can have it on the screen. Let's recite the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can have a seat. The Lord's Prayer, if you don't have it memorized, memorize it. Memorize it. Recite it. I don't know if a day goes by that I don't pray it in my mind, or wake up praying it, memorize it, recite it. Some, uh, some manuscripts have, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Uh, it's, it's, that's a great doxology to add to the end of the Lord's Prayer, but likely it was added in later manuscripts. So if your Bible says that, it's not like your Bible's wrong or, or whatever, but the original probably didn't have that in there. And uh, it's a phenomenal prayer. When you don't have the words to say, just say the Lord's Prayer. Right? We don't want to turn into batalageo, where we say the Lord's Prayer, say the Lord's Prayer, say the Lord's Prayer, and it's kind of like, I said the Lord's Prayer enough times, can you answer me? you know, right? You see how we can get things wrong in prayer. But when you don't have the words to say, just say the Lord's Prayer, pray the Lord's Prayer, and then use it as a template. Once it, this prayer is internalized, what's going to happen is it's going to begin to influence the way that you pray. Uh, the Greek word prosyukomai, which means prayer, is a combination of two Greek words, pros, which means to or towards, and eukamai, which actually means to wish or desire. So the word prayer in and of itself, and there's many different ways to pray, prayers of thanksgiving, silent prayer, listening prayer, contemplative prayers, but the word pray actually means to make your desires known towards who? God. It actually is to ask God for things, and the Lord's prayer is an asking prayer. There's six things that we're going to ask God for. Uh, And it's really divided into two halves. The first half are we're going to ask God for the things of God, and the second half we're going to ask God for the things that we need. So if you're taking notes, here's the first three things that we're going to ask God for. And it's really good to get our hearts centered on the things of God before we move to the things that we need. The first thing is we're going to ask God uh, to hallow his name. The word hallow just means holy. Holy to make his name holy. Now, is God's name already holy? It already is. So how can you ask God to do something that's already true, right? But essentially what this means is it means we're going to ask God for more people in the world to treat him as holy, to revere his name as holy. You remember one of the Ten Commandments, do not take the Lord's name in vain, casually or carelessly, and someone's name is not just what you call that person. It's a representative of their character, their identity, it's who they are. So when we pray, God, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to make his name great in the world and in our own hearts as well. So this is, remember who you're talking to, our Father in heaven, but then the first thing we're gonna ask God to do is we're gonna ask God to make his name holy in the world and also in our lives. That we get it. We get who God is, and we know Him deeper, more intimately. The second thing we're going to ask God about is we're going to ask God to make His kingdom come. So, God's name and then God's kingdom. This is essentially asking God's kingdom to spread on earth. We want to see more people respond to the gospel. Do you pray about that? Do you pray for your neighbors? Do you pray for the world? Do you pray for revival? Do you pray for God's kingdom? Or is it all about our own little kingdoms? Lowercase k versus, the, you know, like God's king. That's what it's all about, right? Praying for God's kingdom, not just to make his name great and for more people to know him, but more people to obey him and treat him as the king that he is, the rightful king of the universe. And then the third thing that we're going to pray is we're going to pray for God's will, his name to be holy, his kingdom to come, and then his will to be holy. Done. This is essentially God's will. It is we're asking for people, including ourselves, to follow him, to follow God's will. I think of the Gethsemane prayer of Jesus where he says, not my will be done, but yours. And so we're praying not to, not to change God's will, but actually to change our hearts to, to know God's will, to follow God's will. And... Uh, and this is a, this is a beautiful. So, and, and then after these three, you see this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. And most people take that just as like God's will be done as it is in heaven. But essentially, you can take that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, and apply it to all three of these requests. Because where is God always treated as holy, holy, holy? In heaven, in the throne room. Where is God's kingdom, the, the present reality where God is on the throne? It's in heaven. And, and where is God's will be dying, being done perfectly? It's in heaven, right? So what we're praying for is the things of God. If you were to summarize all of them is we want heaven to break in. We're praying for heaven to break in, for this earth in our time to look more like heaven than it did yesterday. That's a pretty noble way to pray, okay? That's like, this is the heart of our prayer. This should be the beginning. And when you, when you know the Lord's prayer and you begin to pray this way, you're going to find that the most important thing that God changes when you pray is actually your heart. You're going, to, you're going to begin to sense what God is doing and join him in his kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first three, the things of God, okay? It's, I think other than centering and remembering who you're praying to, the, the net, very next thing to do is pray for the things of God. That's going to set your prayer trajectory on the right course. Does that make sense? Pray for the things of God first. The second thing that Jesus does, though, it's almost not quite a 180, but it's very different. Give me some bread. Here's the next three. These are are the things that we need, our daily need. Give us, forgive us, and lead us. Uh, Early church fathers like Augustine, Erasmus, Jeremiah, could not believe that when Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread that he actually meant bread. Because it seems you got these really spiritual things, right? The kingdom and all the stuff. And then it's like, and I'm also hungry. And they're like, nah, it's gotta be like the wedding banquet in heaven that we're praying for. It's gotta be some kind of like spiritual bread, you know? Like man doesn't live on bread alone, but uh, from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus is like, Yeah, yeah, we, we also need that spiritual nourishment. Guess what? You also need bread. You also need provision. And, and I think this is, this is really significant to the shift. We, we begin with the things of God, but then here's something, so, this is so beautiful about who God is. He cares not only about the condition and the contents of your soul, he cares about the contents of your stomach. He cares if you're provided for, if your needs are there. Now, we have to be really careful here. Jesus teaches us Many scholars, D.A. Carson puts it like this: that they teach us to pray for our needs, not our greeds. Okay? So, in the ancient world, many workers were dependent on their daily wage to purchase their daily bread. So, it wasn't like you got paid bi-weekly or monthly, you got paid for one day's work. So, if you fell ill for two weeks straight, your family could be thrown in intense poverty and might even die. This is serious, okay? So when, so when he teaches people to pray for their daily bread, we have to imagine like praying for enough food to get by for today. Not necessarily today and next week and for 20 more years. Like, we, have to, we have to take this into consideration. And when we pray, God, give us our daily bread. If he already has, I think this can very easily turn into a prayer of thanksgiving for us. If God has already provided for your daily needs, it might be worth almost using this as a prayer template to say, God, thank you for providing for my daily bread. And thinking about the people in the world, maybe people in your own life, who don't have their daily bread, who don't have their needs provided for, who are struggling. You know, I think of the hundreds of thousands of people who don't even have clean water. Like, those are the kinds of things that we can use to actually move into a prayer of thanksgiving. If God has already provided, we move into a prayer of thanksgiving and we pray for those in an intercessory way instead of petitioning God for our daily needs ourselves, The second one is we want God to give us our daily bread, then we ask God to forgive us. I don't know if a day goes by where any of us have 100% purity in what we say, what we do, or what we think, even the motives of our heart. I don't know if there's another way to say it is in the same way that we need God's provision and and we depend on him daily for our physical needs, I'm not sure there's a day that goes by where we don't need God's grace, where we don't need his forgiveness in our lives. And uh, we pray God's will be done and we try to live God's will be done. We try to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, but often we fall short And so we pray, I think all three of these are daily needs, things that we can pray for on a daily basis, and we move into a time of confession where we acknowledge the ways that we have wronged God, we we pray for forgiveness, and as John writes, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he says, if we confess our sins to him, And, and, and we just have to acknowledge our daily need where we need not just to align our hearts with God's will, but to be forgiven for the ways that we've... This isn't to say that you're going in and out of salvation, by the way, necessarily, that, oh, I forgot to pray for forgiveness yesterday, you know? But what it is to say is that sin always damages a relationship, doesn't it? It always does. There is no sin that that you can uh, do that doesn't damage your relationship with your own soul, with people around you, or your relationship with your Father in heaven. And so if you want to see that relationship grow, depth and intimacy, we need to pray and be people of confession. Uh, Generally speaking, Protestant churches aren't great at confession. We've kind of moved away from that. We've kind of been like, well, I prayed for forgiveness that one time. Jesus teaches us in his daily prayer to ask God for forgiveness. And I want to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray, don't you? All right, give us, forgive us, and then lead us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This has caused a little bit of a hang-up for some people because James, in James 1.13, talks about God cannot tempt anyone. He himself cannot be tempted, and he does not tempt anyone. The reality is, I think that's just kind of a misunderstanding of the phrasing of how Jesus teaches us here. Uh, The reality is uh, there is someone who can tempt you, the devil, (laughs) There is the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's your own desires. There's pure pressure from the world. And this, is, this last phrase is really just an acknowledgement that if you want to be delivered from the evil one, which I think is the best way to apply that, not just evil in general, but the evil one, the enemy, the best way to be delivered by evil is to be led by God on a daily basis where you seek God's leadership. It's why it's called walking by the Holy Spirit. Right? It's a daily seeking God's will. What does he want from me? What does he have from me? And uh, not so this isn't necessarily Jesus saying, like, if you don't pray it, God's gonna lead you to sin. And he's like tricking, like, this isn't, does that make sense? We pray understanding who God is, and that that God doesn't tempt us, but we pray that God would lead another way we could we could free it up is we say, God lead us away from temptation. Knowing that God won't lead us into temptation to try and tempt us, like that's the enemy's job. But we want God to lead us away from temptation into the paths of righteousness that he has for us. So we're going to pray for the things of God and we're going to pray for our daily needs. Now, I want to wrap up with Jesus's uh, a few verses that show up right after. This, these next two verses probably could be a whole sermon. There's just not that many weeks in the summer, to be honest. So, and this, this does tie in uh, to the Lord's Prayer. In verse 14, Matthew 6:14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Does this seem shocking to anyone? These are harsh words from Jesus. And yet they're not uncharacteristic of Jesus's consistent teachings. The way he taught us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts in the same way that we also have forgiven who? Our debtors. So it ties in right there. The reality is we, we, we know that God has this unconditional love for his creation. He loves, he, he loves the world, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his one and only son to die for the world. He loves us in that he cares about us and he desires us to come to a knowledge of the truth. But unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional forgiveness, or kind of this idea of universalism, that everyone will just magically be saved or forgiven for their sins somehow, regardless of if they have a faith in Jesus or not, regardless of, according to Jesus, if they themselves are people who forgive others or not. And if what this teaches us is if we have been forgiven, necessarily we must forgive other people. Now, like I said, we could do a whole sermon on this. Forgiveness does not necessarily always mean reconciliation. It doesn't always mean the relationship is restored. It doesn't always mean that you have, you know, there's no boundaries in that relationship. You can forgive someone in your heart, but not necessarily invite that person to sin against you again. Does that make sense? But Peter had some questions about this when Jesus taught him to forgive. And he said, well, how many times do I really need to forgive my brother? And uh, it's like like seven times, you know, like seven is a lot. It's like, seriously, dude. In Matthew 18, Jesus answers him by telling him this story. And this is where I see a reiteration of Jesus's, what I would say is a very clear teaching. I think we just need to accept, as difficult as this teaching is, that Jesus means what he says very plainly. In Matthew 18, he tells this story of the unforgiving servant. Maybe you're aware of it. It's this idea that there's a man who's a servant to the king, and he's racked up this insurmountable amount of debt. Like in modern currency, it's like millions of dollars. Like he's he's never going to live long enough to pay off this debt. And the right thing to happen, the just thing to happen to this man is for him and his family to be thrown into debtor's prison and they'll probably die in there. And this man realizes this. He's like, whoa, I realize my own guilt. He goes before the king, throws himself on the ground, he begs for mercy and this is one of the ridiculous things about the parable the king forgives him he was going to hold him fully accountable for his own sin his own debts and he says you know what let's start over right here right now i'm going to show grace and mercy to you and then that man so it's like that's that would be a nice happily ever after wouldn't it be and then that man goes out and he finds someone who owes him a few thousand bucks which is still a few thousand bucks, right? But it is nothing, minuscule, pennies, compared to what this man has just been forgiven of. And he goes to that person, and he grabs him, and he's shaking him, and he, you know he's like raging at this guy, and he throws that guy into prison. The servant, who was just forgiven millions of dollars, throws that guy into prison. He says, you better pay me every last penny. Well, guess who sees this? another servant of the king. And the other servant goes back and reports to the king. And he says, listen, that guy who you just forgave, he's out there being unforgiving. He's being unmerciful, and he is not showing grace. And the king calls that man back, he retracts the contract, and he says, you are going to prison for what you've done. A haunting parable, not a happily ever after. But the point that Jesus is giving is that, you know, he uses this unique word debts in the Lord's Prayer. And it is unique to refer to sins in, in some ways as debts. So the reality is, our sins create rack up this insurmountable amount of debt, the damages that we owe God for what we have done in rebellion against him. And to be forgiven by God. On account. And that's not just because God is, is wealthy and waves a magic wand. It's not this kind of like cheap grace magic eraser gospel. God paid the debt that you owe by sending his one and only son to this earth to live a perfect life and die and suffer and face the wrath of God on the cross and then be raised back to life three days for you. And what Jesus is saying, knowing he's gonna do this, is saying, and you can't forgive that one person Neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. And so the reality is for us to be people who are truly forgiven, to to understand that we've accepted the gospel, is that forgiveness has changed our hearts. And it doesn't mean it's always easy to forgive people, but it means that God expects us and empowers us to forgive people by the gospel. And so I'm just here to tell you the good news of the gospel today is that if you've never received that mercy, God really is that merciful. He really is that rich in mercy. He really is that kind. He may not be your heavenly father today, but today can be the very first time that you are adopted into the family of God and you begin to address God as our father. You're part of the our father in heaven group. That you can actually be truly forgiven, truly made righteous, truly adopted into the family by putting your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I gotta warn you, it's not just a, a verbal Lord, Lord. It's a being willing to live the life, to forgive others, to, to confess, to repent. And even in, as it says in Acts 2.38, to repent and be baptized. We call people to this every single week because I think it's such a central way that we respond to the grace. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by the work that Jesus has done, but we, we must respond in the way that Jesus instructed us to respond. So I would encourage you, if you've never been baptized, Peter, in the very first sermon of the early church, says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is not just for you, it's for all who would come after you. Uh, After second service today, I'm headed down to the river, and I'm gonna baptize someone today. Isn't that, can we celebrate that? And it is powerful, it is powerful to see God drawing people to himself, but I'm here to tell you, if you are not someone who, who is in the family of God, who's been forgiven, who's accepted Jesus, today can be the day find out more about baptism online, or, or come and pray with a member of our prayer team at the end of service. But we're going to move into a time of the Lord's Supper, and if you didn't receive the communion elements, just raise your hand, and an usher can get you those during this next time. And what I really want to center our hearts on is kind of that idea of the insurmountable debt that we owe. And the richness of God's mercy, how great is his grace, how kind is his love, and the fact that God is willing to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all things. So let's spend a few moments in prayer and reflection. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.